0: Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness, and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light.
1: Go ahead, believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead, get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right, Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500
0: years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow.
2: Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett
1: from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome aboard to the broadcast for Sunday, July the 3rd. And uh, in an hour's time, I guess we'll bid uh, happy July 4th to our American listeners. And I hope you all had a a great holiday Canada Day weekend. Uh, Lots of... uh, Lots of swimming and uh, bike riding for the, uh, for the twins up here in Onionville. So uh, we've got a, a great show for you lined up for tonight. In just a few moments, Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief will be uh, with us to tell us about what's going on over there in Greece and this uh, economic meltdown. Uh, a lot of speculation as to uh, you know, what's behind that. Was it in fact engineered? There's a big question. We'll discuss that with the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, Joel Skousen, in just a few moments. And uh, coming up a little bit later in the program, uh, we'll uh, check in with a, um, a gentleman who's a very learned man with the Eastern Orthodox uh, Church. Of course, that uh, happens to be my uh, my faith. And uh, we'll talk to Father Robert Gaius about a whole host of things, including, well, it's really the the most important topic, isn't it? Life after death. What happens After we die, Father Robert Gaius will be with us at 1130 along with our good friend Victor Vigiani because I suspect we may touch on the UFO issue with Father Robert Gaius, which should be a very interesting discussion. That's not often you sit down with a man of the cloth and talk about the paranormal and UFOs, but we will do that. Uh, Just a heads up that coming up next week on the show, uh, July the 10th, I suspect I will be coming to you live from somewhere down in the southeastern United States, getting ready to uh, head out on the road, uh, producing season two of the Conspiracy Show a television program, which airs across Canada on Vision TV. And uh, I believe we have uh, uh, sort of narrowed down the air date, it'll be October. When we bring you the um, the brand new season, eighteen episodes. Uh, coming at you in October 2011. Anyway, we're heading out on the road. I am going to be flying down to Miami on Wednesday or Thursday, and uh, we'll be uh, loading up the uh, the conspiracy show van down there and uh, heading out, uh, hitting places like um, Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi, on up into Charlotte, North Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, D- uh, Duluth, uh, Georgia, and um, wherever I am on the 10th, uh, next sunday i 'll be uh, hunkered down in a hotel somewhere with uh, some dependable high speed internet I hope uh, doing the show from there uh, it 's always fun to get out on the road with the TV crew from the uh, the conspiracy show all right why don 't we uh, take a time out when we come back let 's find out what 's going on over there in Greece in this economic crisis. Are they going to default? Is it inevitable? What does that mean? and is it possible that this whole crisis has in fact been engineered is it the imf is it the european union who or what is responsible back with more of the conspiracy show joel skousen coming up stay with us
2: the truth is not out there it's right here the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio am 740 Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
1: The World Affairs Brief is a weekly news analysis service dedicated to providing an understanding of the hidden agendas behind the actions of world leaders and other powerful individuals who influence government from behind the scenes, and the editor and publisher is a good friend of the program, Joel Skousen. Welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend?
3: I'm just fine, Richard. It's always good to be with you.
1: Great to have you, and a little bit later, we'll, uh, we'll find out how people can subscribe to uh, the week, uh, the World Affairs Brief. So, the situation in Greece, uh, it appears, uh, on the one hand, to be quite dire, although we have, uh, m- uh, my, my uh, mighty Aphrodite, of course, has many relatives over there who are saying that the media is really playing this up, and they've seen worse before. Of course, we're talking about people... Uh, relatives over there that have lived through the war and and, and, a, and a depression, uh, and so they're not maybe as worked up about this as some of us over here are. But uh, what does this? What, I mean, what is going on over there? What does it mean that they're about to default on their uh, on on their on their debts?
3: Well, the the package, the bailout package that has just been celebrated, on behalf of Greece through the European Central Bank. <coughs> is really just extending the inevitable uh, because in essence there were a series of loans that the EU was trying to roll over or get the uh, the creditors to roll over meaning that they would exchange those debts that were due uh, this month uh, for new 30-year long-term loans or, or bonds and they weren't willing to do that at least a, a certain portion were not willing unless the bailout was necessary so that the European Bank could, in fact, give the money to Greece so that they could pay off those creditors that would no go, not go along with the rollover. But in doing so, of course, uh, Greece has had to take on even more debt. And it's going to be virtually impossible. Uh, I mean, you can prolong this day of reckoning by doing these systematic bailouts from time to time when you can't twist enough arms to get them to go along with rolling over the debt. Nobody wants to roll over debt in Greece for 30 years. Nobody expects Greece to last more than a year or so, let alone 30 years. And so only those that uh, have got some kind of secret assurances that the Fed will ultimately bail them out are going to be willing to roll over. Uh, But this is a high-stakes game, Richard, because the EU itself is at risk of collapsing the monetary union, and that's why they are willing to go do whatever it takes. This is a globalist agenda to continue to uh, use crises to lure People into accepting more power from the European Union, and Greece is is the anvil upon which they're hammering um, banks and people into, uh, you know, greater uh, accepting greater control and power from the uh, from the EU.
1: How much does Greece owe to its creditors?
3: uh... Well, the three billion uh, rollover. Uh, there was three billion in in rollover. We're looking at about three hundred billion in total, and that just. <laughs> You know, it's over the GDP of the nation. The GDP is shrinking probably by 25% already and going worse. It's exacerbated by the fact that the riots going on in Greece are mostly organized by the Communist Party, who's been looking for a vehicle to cause sufficient unrest to to drive uh, the Pompidou government into a vote of lack of confidence uh, where they can perhaps take power. Um, there even, you know, talk about a military coup, which is something that's happened before in Greece. Uh, but I don't expect uh, uh, them to be able to keep this charade going for the long term uh, simply because Greece is never going to be able to cover and pay those debts. It's, and how long will Germany and the rest and Finland and other EU countries country be willing to bail out? Certainly their governments will be because they don't care what the people want, really. Uh, they just simply have to conjure up a sufficient excuse to talk to people into the end of the world, just like they did in, in the TARP bailout. You know, the world is going to end financially if we don't bail out these big banks. Well, And I mean, you know I mean, it would be better to let them go under, and it would be better to let Greece go under.
1: Well, what does that mean, let Greece go under? Uh, if, they, if they default on their loans, what does that mean?
3: It means that the bank balances of the largest banks in Germany and France, who are the major who illegally, knowing, uh, gave loans to Greece when they knew that Greece was uh, uh, bypassing the uh, restrictions on inflation. Well, there's a 3.5% inflation of the euro that each country that's part of the European Monetary Union is restricted to. Each one prints their own euros. Uh, but they're restricted to only increase the value of the number of euros 3.5 percent. Well, Greece can't live within that, nor could Portugal, nor could Spain, nor could Italy. And so these people uh, fudged the books, cooked the books, and and took secret loans from German and French banks, um, which you know shouldn't have been giving those loans.
4: And In other words, the they're increasing they the,
1: their monetary supply off the books. Uh, above and correct. beyond the three point five percent that they're allowed, but a lot of people are, are 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 sitting back and blaming Greece because of their, you know, they have a generous pension program. They uh, they had or they had I should say, uh, you know, early retirement for civil servants and, and so forth, saying that Greece old. has been living too high on the hog. But I don't necessarily buy that. What else is going on here?
3: Well, no, that's 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 the reason that Greece cannot live within its means. Its socialist welfare state is too generous. And just like Norway had to reduce its welfare state when it faced bankruptcy and Sweden had to do the same thing, and Greece has refused to do so uh, other than uh, the threat of bankruptcy and default. And this is actually a beneficial thing that goes on in in the world. Union coercive wage, and there's nothing wrong with unions as as well, they're voluntary, but when you give them government coercive power so that the employers cannot hire anyone in response to high union demands, then uh, you have a coercive power that is, is not legitimate. And the only way to break the power of the unions once they get used to that is to threaten bankruptcy, whereby you have a choice. Uh, same thing with a socialist welfare program. You have a choice. Either the government collapses or you give in on these ironclad contracts that you've extracted from us over the years. And um, every country that has had to give, force the unions and the social welfare system to give in has done better and it's prolonged, look at, look at New Zealand who did it. And New Zealand's got a lease on life that will last a, a great deal longer, and the ones that refuse have to either be bailed out or they go bankrupt. So that is the major mechanism in which Greece cannot survive because the people will ta- not tolerate, or at least the more radical elements, will not tolerate the changes required uh, to put it on a, on a safe ground, any more than Minnesotans. Uh, you know, will tolerate uh, breaking the unions there. And they'd rather go down uh, than bite the bullet. And the same with California, the same with New York, and these states are going to end up being like mini-Greases
1: within the United States. Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief. But the interesting thing that that I see going on here in Greece, uh, Joel, that I've seen played elsewhere in the world, is in comes the IMF and starts demanding, uh, you've got to sell this port off, you've got to sell this resource off, you've got to sell this off, and before you know it, you lose your sovereignty. We've seen it in South America where now, you know, the water supply has been privatized. This is what I find disturbing, and I see it replaying in Greece.
3: Well, they lost their sovereignty when they went head over heels into debts to the extent that they cannot repay. That's when you lose your sovereignty. These are people taking advantage of that for globalist control purposes, twisting their arms and getting uh, concessions. you see, this was, in my opinion, the ultimate purpose of the IMF and the World Bank, to loan South American countries all this money. They knew they were socialist countries. They knew that it was easier for them to take loans than it was to uh, to tell the people, no, we can't afford these types of benefits. And um, and they, they had a long-term hook in the process. They knew eventually they'd get to the point where they couldn't pay off the loans, and then they could ex extract in the name of free market, and that's what gives the free market a bad uh, name. In reality, these are austerity measures that should have uh, been done years ago, and the the IMF and World Bank actually induced them to continue their socialist uh, excesses by giving them loans rather than requiring that they have austerity early on which is the only thing that stops the socialist mentality people will continue to take and take and take as long as they think that we can milk the rich and milk the free market economy to provide benefits for us
1: i i, I and, agree that that's certainly at play but if i'm hearing you correctly joel you're saying though that the imf uh... took advantage of this situation moved in there basically giving giving you know drugs, uh, heroin, to a heroin addict and, and said, exactly. yeah, take more, take more, take more. And then the day of reckoning and they say, okay, now for payback we want this, 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 and this.
3: And the process is what, what they're getting. They're getting globalist control uh, uh, slowly, you know, piece by piece, one country after another. They'll move on to Portugal and that's why uh, what I'm saying is is that these countries will in fact default less. A sugar daddy, the European Union continues to bail them out and how long that can go depends on how much money they can create without causing superinflation or hyperinflation. And that's the same game the Fed is playing. The Fed is throwing money around the world when we have no money. We are bankrupt, just like Greece. But the Fed can print money and it's got two to seven hundred trillion, depending on your estimate, dollars outstanding and so they can print ten trillion a year and not show up as, uh, as more than 1% of the money supply. That's how the Fed can get away with inflating so much and not destroying the dollar. And the end of the collapse of the dollar is very premature. They can milk this out another 10 years, maybe 15.
1: Joel, would, would Greece have been better off keeping the drachma staying out of the European Union?
3: Well, it depends on your point of view. If you're a socialist... Yes, they would be better off, because then they could play the inflation game. They could go beyond the 3.5%. They could do what the Fed is doing, inflating it to 7 to 10%. Now, they don't have as big a monetary base, not anywhere near as big as the Fed, so they can't get it. It'll show up as hyperinflation much sooner in Greece, and that's exactly what they did it before, and that's what they would do again if they still had the drachma. Now, they'd have more sovereignty, but it isn't going to change the fact that that printing and creating money to pay off socialist benefits is a dead-end and eventually ends up in bankruptcy of the country, or hyperinflation, either one.
1: One of the opposition parties is suggesting that there's another way uh, out of this, and that is uh, tax cuts. How do you feel about that? Well, Stimulate um, the economy through tax, tax cuts. cuts.
3: Alone, uh, tax cuts alone will do... There's two things to do to really revive the Greek economy. Because they're part of the European Union, they could be a magnet for workers coming to Greece and Greece could become a manufacturing powerhouse. They could do many things, even just like Japan, even though they don't have a great deal of uh, you know, minerals and productive capacity. They could become a manufacturing powerhouse if they would cut labor regulations so that labor costs would be cut, cut taxes so that they attract capital. And, uh, but you can't do that when you've got to pay this huge uh, benefit packages of the, of the social. You just don't have enough room. To take the ten years that it takes to grow the economy through attraction in in tax cut and free market uh, economics you can't have both you know if you have low welfare system uh, and you attract that capital through tax cuts and through uh, lower regulation and lower wages then you can have a boom going on
4: but who's buying
1: well, all these countries
3: are willing to do that
1: uh, Joel an editor, publisher of uh, World Affairs Brief here on The Conspiracy Show, AM740. Joel, Joel, who is buying up all of these uh, assets during this fire sale in Greece?
3: Well, it, it is the same investors that are essentially uh, you know, behind the big banks. Uh, they're kind of playing both sides of the... Uh, there are, are you know, international corporations that are going to be buying up uh, those assets, and they are tied to the banks. As well. So, this is kind of their back door of uh, saving themselves as the thing goes down. It's like a hedge fund, you know, they win going up and they also have a, a hedge strategy to buy going down.
1: Have you heard rumblings that uh, what, what they, these uh, uh, creditors or whomever is buying up these assets, what they really want to get their hands on is Greek uranium? Apparently, Greece is rich in uranium.
3: I have heard that rumor. I can't confirm it, uh, but it's got to be more than that. I mean, uh, uranium right now still is not uh, you know, appreciating too much as a commodity. There's still plenty around the world, so I don't think that's the whole story. It's certainly got to be part of it.
1: So I mean is is the European Union as a whole at jeopardy here, if not with Greece? if you know next comes Portugal, then comes Spain, uh, Ireland, what I mean how how bad is it? is this could could this spell the end for the European Union?
3: Yeah, uh, well, I would say yes and no. In other words, it could if you didn't have the power to create money and if you didn't have China coming in the back door, and providing almost 25% liquidity when, uh, when uh, the euro needs it. The euro would be tanking if it weren't for this largesse coming from China right now, and it's bigger than what we think. And, of course, China's made a deal with the European Union. You know. We'll uh, you go soft on our, uh, our tyranny and our human rights violations, and we'll give you money. And they're buying off the European Union leaders, and it's a, a very sad, unprincipled thing
1: that's going on there. So what, what do you see playing out in Greece uh, in the next uh, three to six months?
3: Well, there will be continued riots um, uh, because the Communist Party is very active there. They were perhaps you know, the largest block of uh, parties there. They don't hold a majority right now, but it's uh, uh, very, very powerful and strong. They've got a tremendous amount of uh, people wedded to their socialist system and unwilling to give it up. So we're going to see a lot of social unrest. I do think, however, that um, the European Union can continue to bail out uh, in increments as these loans and rollovers come due, probably for another year or so. But eventually, the European Union is, uh, uh, is going to run out of money. The European Union does not have the monetary base sufficient to float all this money if China stops loaning or buying up euros to keep the euro supported and they're going to be in trouble if there is a default the nine hundred pound gorilla in the room is the derivatives markets that are guaranteeing that greece will not default if it defaults there's a tremendous scandal that's going to hit and aig will look like a piker compared to all the derivatives owned by most of american banks uh... who have sold these derivatives who have made these guarantees they'd be at risk of another bailout and that's why kim geithner when he told his Wall Street insiders, who was watching an uh, an HBO presentation on the, the Wall Street fall, uh, a movie that's come out, he said, there's going to be another storm, and you better be prepared for it. So I think when Geithner knows that, and by the way, you know he's bailing out uh, pretty soon. Sure he doesn't want to be in the Treasury. When this happens, uh, I think there's a big storm coming, and it could have real... Um, Economic depression consequences worldwide. If this, if Greece defaults, and the derivative market, which is about ten times larger than Greece's potential to default, goes down, uh, we're going to see a real problem.
1: How could uh, such a small economy as as Greece, on a a global scale, relatively small, have such a huge? Uh, domino effect. I mean, you, you're saying that this, this, these little ripples in the pond could create a tsunami. How is that possible?
3: Yeah. It, it, and it's because it is the beginning domino, and then after that you have Portugal, then you have Iceland, you have Spain, you have Italy. Each one of those things are just about 10% behind Greece. They're that bad off. And you see, you have the powers that be in each of these countries have twisted a lot of private... Uh, Financial arms, so to speak, uh, pension funds and other people to to invest in these uh, uh, in these bonds. And uh, these people will start to pull out if Greece defaults. They're going to start to pull out, and that collapses the market, and that triggers all the derivative guarantees. So it's the derivatives that have the potential of bringing down the system, not the actual default itself. It's the guarantees against default that the biggest banks are holding. Uh, you know that will really be a problem for them.
1: Okay, so again, Joel, uh, what's the best thing that uh, Greece could do then right now?
3: Well, Greece, like the United States, any country, they're unwilling to do this, but they simply have to slash spending. That's the only thing they can just stop the welfare system, say, we don't have the money, it's not there, nobody's getting anymore. Get used to it, get over it, everybody go back to work. And at the same time, if you cut regulations, and you cut taxes so that people had some place to go, had some place to attract business, had some place to start their entrepreneurial spirit. You could come back out of this. But essentially, they need to default. Default is good. Sure, you're going you're gonna to stiff the German bankers, but they can handle it. Greece would be better off to default and start over with a better economy, with better regulations, and with less welfare. I think that's Greece's only salvation, but nobody has the moral courage to do
1: that anymore. Joel, how do you subscribe, how do we subscribe to World Affairs Brief?
3: People can go to my website, worldaffairsbrief.com, and click on the subscribe button. It's only $24 for the rest of the year. Uh, people, before they subscribe, should get a free sample copy. They can do that by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com.
1: Terrific. And, Joel, I know that uh, you're going to be on the road a little bit this summer. I'm I'm getting ready to embark uh, on, a, on a trip for the TV show. And at some point uh, in the next uh, short while, you and I are going to hook up and you're going to be, we hope, on an episode of the uh, Conspiracy Television Show. Looking forward to, uh, to sitting down with you in person yeah. finally. Likewise, Richard. It'll be good to meet you. You too. All right. Joel, thank, thank you. you so much Bye. for this. Yeah. Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief. When we come back, Father Robert Gaius from the Eastern Orthodox Rite weighs in on life after death, the paranormal, and perhaps he may have a thing or two to say about UFOs. And, of course, our good friend Victor Vigiani in studio with us as well from Zealand Communications, back with more of The Conspiracy shows. Stay with us.
2: This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740.
2: Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1 866 740 4740.
1: Welcome back. Father Robert Gaius of the Eastern Orthodox Presbyterian has written a number of works, three of which deal with human immortality. His latest is In My Ever After, published by University Press of America last year. His first was Personal Existence After Death, a 1995 publication from Open Court. Besides human immortality, uh, Father Gaius has also written a lengthy study on the doctrine of Christ's resurrection entitled... The Christ from Death Arisen, which the British National Catholic Herald called this remarkable work, quote, end quote. Uh, Father Gaius leaves room open for paranormal interchanges once we define paranormal as excluding the works of agencies that work against salvation. Father Robert Gaius, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. And uh, Victor Vigiani from Zeland Communications, hello to you. Hi, Richard. Good well, good you.
5: evening. Uh, thank you for having me on your program tonight,
1: and uh, and Father Gaius, I've been given instructions that you prefer to be referred to as Robert. Is that uh, yes?
5: That's what uh, I think would be uh, okay. Yes, I would appreciate that.
1: All right. Uh, before we get g- g- going, uh, Robert, um, for those I I, uh, I come from the uh, the Greek Orthodox uh, faith. Um, but for those not familiar with orthodoxy, I mean, I know that's, that's a three-hour question in and of itself, but uh, could you just give us a, a, a thumbnail sketch perhaps uh, outlining some of the, the principal tenets of the orthodox faith?
5: Well, we go back to, uh, we have the first issue is the line of succession wherein we find ourselves aligned with Andrew, the Proto-Cletus, who was the first called. He was Peter's brother, and he was the one that told Peter, come and see what I have found, the the Savior, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and its uh, development of ecumenical councils, after seven of them, and does not recognize certain uh, Roman rite, dogmas, such as the Immaculate Conception, for example, or understands it in a much different way, and is more of a synodal uh, uh, interchange of churches, one with the other, rather than having a top, uh, where the primate uh, is the Pope, and it's a hierarchical Latin-Roman law structure. It's more communal. It is more independently run. There are different uh, areas of Eastern Orthodox churches that are self-governing and do not report and take uh, direction or instruction from one individual, but the entire church together agrees with certain fundamental tenets. Uh, We principally agree with almost everything that the Roman Rite does, but our liturgy is vastly different. It is also divided into the Ambrosian Rite, the Gregorian Rite, the Athanasian Rite, uh, the the Rite of St. John Chrysostom, the different way we approach the liturgies. So we're pretty much the same. There's about 1.4 billion believers in, in Christian uh, doctrine throughout the world. Outside. That doesn't include the Protestants. There's about 300 million uh, Orthodox believers. But I think our principal distinction is that we trace our, success, our line of succession to St. Andrew, who we believe is the principal leader of uh, the Church, and with St. Peter, was on a par with Peter, as was St. Paul. We don't have this notion that uh, there's one individual who takes direction from one Holy Spirit and then disseminates it to everybody. The Church, in its entire practice together, is the body of belief that is being preached through the Gospels.
1: Uh, you, you mentioned, of course, the Apostle uh, Andrew, and uh, uh, um, I have a, a twin boys, and and one's, uh, we just celebrated his name day on the thirtieth. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, Apostolos. So, uh, life after death, of course. I mean, that is uh, really the the big question. I think on most people's minds, what happens after we die? The the Orthodox perspective. On, on, on what happens in the moments or the, the minutes, hours after death. Can you, can you start there? What happens at that point, the moment you know, we breathe our final?
5: Well, um, I, the, there is a judgment. The soul departs from the body. In the, in the Eastern Orthodox belief, the soul departs from the body and has a judgment An individual judgment before the divine and then is judged at that moment and either will go to eternal felicity have to wait for that to occur or God forbid something else occurs which is the opposite of eternal felicity and then there is a final judgment at which time the entire world is judged every individual sees what they have done and then judges themselves before the throne of God and in the end will have eternal salvation or will go to where they had uh, wanted to go as their life indicated that they would. However, the uh, in this age, most people do not accept Uh, religious doctrine as the, uh, means for understanding entrance into immortal existence. And that's why I've written my works on immortality. They are more addressed to the academic, secular world than to the religious believer who accepts the resurrection of Christ, like I do, as an absolute and undiluted fact. St. Paul, in his, uh, epistle to the Corinthians, says that over 500 people had seen Christ and some of them are still alive, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, telling the people that if you want to see if Christ is alive, or appear to these individuals, why don't you ask them, because they are still living. But in today's existence, and for some, uh, since the time of probably Aristotle, and through the Middle Ages, the argument has been, how do we establish that there is such a thing as immortality, which is not a matter of faith? And my book begins by making the distinction that the consciousness and the body are not the same. The body is destructible, is material, is divisible. And if consciousness in some way is unlike everything that matter is, that is to say is indestructible, then we have a beginning grounds for looking at the proposition that the individual is immortal in himself. And that's been the principal problem in philosophy for about the past 2,000 years, establishing consciousness as being indestructible and immaterial, unlike the body. And how you establish consciousness as being unlike the body is by showing that it has attributes that the body does not have. And if it has attributes that, only, that the body does not have, then it would seem that it would probably be other than the body, other than material, other than destructible. And that's what I did in my book, In My Ever After. Uh, I tried to, in a disciplined uh, approach, address many of the issues uh, in philosophy that go against immortal existence. I, uh, for example, people say when you die, uh, since the body doesn't move, therefore it's... There's nothing about the body that exhibits something that shows that it is in some way perjuring bodily decomposition. But that assumes that the senses tell you everything about existence. But there is nothing in sensation that says to you everything about existence is contained in the senses. You can't read it off sense data. It's an intellectual proposition. So not everything that you see in the senses comes to you, or not, not all knowledge that you get comes from sensation, as uh, I just indicated, because you would not be able to conclude that if all sensation was the only source for knowledge. you follow what I'm saying there?
1: Um, I, I do, and, and let me see if I can come at it from, from a different uh, angle. I, w- I was speaking with a theoretical uh, physicist. Mind you he's considered to be on on the, on the fringe and, and he's uh, exploring a new area of, of physics called um, uh, let me see if I can get this right, subquantum kinetics. And uh, he says that that um, that things like gravity and, and uh, they emanate from an ether, from the ether. So this exists b- beneath the physical or material plane. Is that sort of what you're, you're alluding to, that, that um, this, this, I don't know if we want to call it uh, another dimension, but this ether, I mean, is that, is that perhaps where we go? Is that where consciousness emanates from?
5: No, um, <clears throat> there are many different ways of looking uh, 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 at uh, uh, this issue indivisibility, indestructibility, is not like a dimensional existence. It's not like an extended existence. It's not like a quantum existence. If God himself is absolutely immaterial, and as our religion teaches, we we are in some way made like unto God, that means we are in some way immaterial. So it would not be that I would be approaching it And I'm not going to rule out a quantum approach to this issue. It's just that I approached it from the viewpoint of indivisibility and and indestructibility. That is to say, immateriality. And the individual consciousness is immaterial. There is nothing about it that has a material attribute. And on the principle of the excluded middle, something is either material or immaterial, and if that which does not have a materi- an attribute that the material has, if it exists, then it is immaterial. That is the way I approached it, not from, you know, an ether. It's actually a metaphysical concept. Absolute immateriality, absolute indestructible existence. That is what individual immortality in uh, the way I approach it, would be.
4: So, So, Robert, would that be, um, if, if you look at consciousness from the point of view of what you're just speaking about, when the body ceases to exist as a corporeal entity and whatever comes next, is whatever comes next a movement towards what God might be like? Are we moving towards the the, the, the essence of what, this God, the God deity, might be—is uh, that a movement towards that, or well, is it? H- how does that this, work?
5: Well, in this existence, we are like unto God, but in a very heavy dross way. We are a mattered. It's a difficulty that we have. Not that matter is a punishment, mm-hmm. but it is—it is not. It's something that does not enable us to be as. In, as perfect as we could be. So in this existence, we would be moving toward... All intellection is an attempt at immateriality. The more we seek to know, the more we seek to become immaterially enhanced. Uh, there, Plato said that knowledge makes a god out of of a man out of a human being and he said that knowledge is making us more and more immaterial so our process in life when we seek to become more and more knowledgeable about every single thing possible and i mean everything that is a movement towards uh, a perfection which is called, which can only come through immaterial exercise of uh, of the of the intellect and as when we die we are enabled to get closer to immateriality the more we learned and the more we came to know in this existence the more we got to what Christ said the truth I am the way, the truth, and the life so at death the closer we get to truth in this life, the closer we are to immateriality mm-hmm. in our post-mortem existence.
1: Uh, That's the uh, way I would answer that question. Okay. Father Robert Geist, uh, stay with us. Uh, Victor Vigiani from Zeland Communications, stay with us as well. If uh, we have questions and comments out there floating around, we'd love to entertain those as well. 416 toll free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett.
2: Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
1: Joining me in studio from Zealand News Service, the news director, Victor Vigiani. And on the line, Father Robert Gaius of the Eastern Orthodox Presbyterian. And we're talking about what happens after we die. Uh... Robert, the the fact that consciousness survives uh, physical death, uh, but why would they, we then preclude reincarnation? That that consciousness would uh, incarnate again and again?
5: Well, reincarnation says there is no first birth. You are eternally existing from the There has been no beginning to your existence. You just keep re-entering existence. The only problem then with reincarnation is if there's no first birth, there can be no second. That would mean there was no first. That's the problem that I have with reincarnation. I have read, you know, I know of the studies, uh, I think it was Ian Stevenson, am I correct, who did that remarkable work? With children. On 20 yeah. cases suggestive of reincarnation. You, you can yes. correct me if I'm mistaken on the author. He did a remarkable work on reincarnation, indicating that there was no possible explanation for the individual knowing what had come to pass with certain parents, certain relatives, and certain surroundings except by the explanation of reincarnation. I'm aware of that work. I'm aware of the evidence that he brought forth. But the problem that I have with it, again, like I said, is that there is no, if there's no first birth, there can't be a second or a third, because if there's no number one, there can't be number two, number three, number four. That's the way I approach the question of reincarnation, notwithstanding the fact that, as you know, uh, the, the Orthodox Church uh, rules out reincarnation, a o ipso. It simply is not the case.
1: Is there another a possible explanation? Are we talking about some sort of a deception or, or are, we, are we talking about perhaps um, an individual's ability to somehow view uh, someone else's life, someone yeah. else's past life?
5: There is a lot of evidence that people have various levels of ability to reach into other individuals past to know things about other individuals that does not seem to be a result of coincidence or chance this is the uh, notion that there are transcendent capabilities that people have that are inexplicable in materialistic, atomistic terms. And I'm very comfortable with that level of prehension, because it would go to the point that I make in my book that not all existence is material, that there is an ability to go beyond the material to something else that we cannot explain in our current scientific terms. David Holm, H O M E, back in the 19th century. I'm, I don't know if you're aware of his of his uh, 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 activities. Had many instances of being able to tell people different things about their life, which nobody knows how he was able to do it. To do it. This was before the uh, uh, Psychical Society of England in the late 19th century. This, again, is an indication that there is something about the mind that is not bound by the here and the now, which would indicate a spiritual dimension in the individual human being. So I don't have any problem with those uh, activities. I just don't know how to explain them, just like I don't know how to explain, uh, like I said, I believe it's Ian Stevenson's work, on a reincarnation and how these individuals were able to know what they did. I don't think anybody is able to explain away uh, Stevenson's findings. Uh, At least in the research that I did for my latest book, I was unable to find, oh, I have found people say various things that this couldn't be and that couldn't be, but they were not persuasive to me.
1: I I am familiar I, I believe it is Ian Stevenson I'm familiar with uh, his work and also uh a number of studies involving a, a children and uh, their so-called remembrances of past lives I'm I'm wondering if it might have anything to do with what I believe is was referred to as the the Lamb's Book of Life
5: That is uh that that's a uh... How that's to be interpreted, that phrase, uh, you, you know, the Church Fathers have a different, different. it, it was said one time that the uh, Church did accept the doctrine of reincarnation, uh, but I don't really believe, I, I have not found it in Scripture myself uh, in the New Testament, found it really nowhere. It was in some Gnostic strains in the first, second, and third century, but... I think what we have to keep in mind here is that these events show an immaterial aspect of the human being. Uh, if someone is able to know something about somebody else with in ways that are completely inexplicable in scientific methodology of today, then we probably can say that science does not have all the answers for how human cognition and human intellection take place. And I certainly am convinced that science does not have the answer uh, to any of these uh, realities because science does not have the tools to understand something which is immaterial. By its own admission, science denies the immaterial Scientific methodology only allows for the palpable, the tangible, the repeatable, and the publicly verifiable by its own uh, admission. Uh, if you read A.J. Ayer or if you read Francis Bacon, you see how they set forth the notion of scientific methodology. And, of course, David Hume, that 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 uh, most uh, skeptical of all Englishmen in the 17th century— Uh, He would have denied any capability of the mind to reach anything that was immaterial. He essentially saw man as on an animalistic level, that he could not get to something that was abstract, universal, or immaterial. Um, The only problem with Hume, of course, is that when he said that all knowledge comes from sensation, there is nothing in sensation that told him that. So if you ask him, how do you get to this principle that all knowledge comes from sensation, he can't answer the question. He's already contradicted himself.
1: It's, it's like uh, uh, asking a materialist, where does logic come from?
5: Precisely. Or how about when individuals claim that the human brain is like a computer? Well, there is a principle called Goodell's theorem, which, uh, and I address this in my book, Personal Existence After Death which came out in 1995. That was my first uh, uh, entrance into the issue of immortality. You know, there is that saying by Jung, the secret hour of life's midday. And there comes a time when everybody sits down and says, okay, I'm 45, I'm 50, I'm 55. I better take a look at what's going on. And so some people do it early and some people do it late. But if you go into um, uh, the... Uh, uh this uh, idea of immateriality and immortality and and david hume and how he has tried to offset uh the notion of immateriality and Penetrated very difficult uh, in a very difficult way, and ve- with studiousness, you will find out that there are many mistakes in science, in materialism, that do not address realities that we know from our own experience exist. Like you're talking about logic, how do we come to logic? Gödel's theorem says that no mathematical system is self-verifying. No mathematical, and that's a fact. It's true. We all know it. Ask any mathematician. They will tell you that that is a fact. Well, we did not get to that through an algorithm. An algorithm is a process that a computer goes through. It's like a formula. A, comput- a computer comes to binarily comes to things through an algorithm but we know that no mathematical system is self-verifying and it was not done algorithmically it was done independent of a process of formulation of sequences of thought you see, you can read up on goodell uh this notion and aristotle in his posterior analytics tells us that there are certain principles that are self-evident that do not require proof do not require a formula to, for us to understand them. We know them immediately. So here are two examples of where the mind is not like the computer, but all materialism wants us to see is the mind is a computer. It is, the mind is actually a very sophisticated material substrate. The neocortex is an infinitely complex neuronal arrangement that is restricted by matter in space and time. But these two processes of thought, godels theorem and Aristotle's posterior analytics, exonerate the mind from this being limited to the simple uh, inability of going beyond algorithmic processes or computer-like life.
4: So, Robert, what you're saying, I think, is that there are certain things in our existence that are self-evident without proof, according to science. Is that
5: not according to science. Uh, there are certain principles that are self-evident.
4: Without Aristotle
5: proof. goes in that in the posterior ana- analytics. But for our modern-day friends, Godel's theorem. I mean, Godel lived. Uh, Godel's theorem, I think, came out around 1933, 1934. He, he wrote a. Uh, it was extensively written about. So this is sort of a modern understanding from Godel, and that goes contrary to, to computer science, which says everything is algorithmically arrived. An algorithm is a formula. All computer software proceeds by algorithm, no matter how complex. And so people, for example, there's a the notion of microtubules in the neurons, which account for our percepts. I think you and I, Victor, had this conversation one mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. where... I had said, where I was mentioning to you that people believe that our uh, that con- that our uh, 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 electric neuroelectric activity in the brain constitutes our percepts mm-hmm. but these are instantaneous chaotic billions upon billions upon billions Our percepts are coherent, our experience of the world is unitary, it's calm, it's balanced. So there's a new theory that came out that said, well, maybe there are billions and billions of microtubules like processors in the computer that enable our percept to be unitary, calm, and balanced and uh... coherent the only problem is is that you can't have billions upon billions upon billions of neuroelectrical events in the microtubules and have a percept that is calm and balanced and coherent so science again fails an explanation of something that is immaterial which is what i was saying before you know, when uh, Richard brought up the notion of being able to look into a past life or knowing certain things, and David Holm, like I had said, not Hume, Holm, H-O-M-E, in the 19th century, his activity is very, very supportive of an immaterial activity of the, of, of, of the human individual in the teeth of, of the Enlightenment, of materialism, and of reductionism.
1: All right, we'll, uh, we'll take another t- quick uh, timeout. Father Robert Gaia stays with us. Also, Victor Vigiani from Zlan Land News Service back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
2: If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740.
2: Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, Call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740.
1: Just a reminder, the Conspiracy Show television program airing on Vision TV. Season 2 kicks off in October. So just a few short months away, 18 new episodes coming your way. Next week on The Conspiracy Show, the radio version, next Sunday night, We'll uh, speak with John Rappaport of uh, No More Fake News fame and also Nick Redfern and uh, his book, The Real Men in Black. All right. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Service is in studio with us and also uh, Father Robert Gaius of the Eastern Orthodox Presbyterian. And we're talking about what happens after we die and uh, the case for I- immortality. Um. Let's get to uh, to the calls, and uh, I believe we're going to reach out to, uh, is it Hugh in Pennsylvania?
6: Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for uh, taking my call. I appreciate your program. I wish you were on uh, all the stations down here in the lower 48. You're just wonderful.
4: Appreciate uh, that. Thank you.
6: <laughs> Father Robert Gaius, I'll refer to you as Robert as you wish. Uh, Back in the 70s, before I was discharged from general service, um, uh, in a very covert installation, there was a phenomenon that occurred. It was witnessed by dozens of personnel, high security personnel, including myself. I'm going to uh, use a new word for you. This is called a commutator, commutator it yeah. refers technically to the soul mind it's a small three-inch uh, force field which hovers above the fissure of rolando now there were four of these at first we thought they were ufo reconnaissance devices but uh, we quickly learned that they were really the holy family uh, the rosy red one which was in the forefront was of course jesus his uh, his mother mary uh, her spouse, Joseph, and a, a mystery one that we never quite found out who it was. But anyway, this phenomenon lasted for about 15 minutes, a full quarter hour. And many personnel who were sick and suffering uh, a couple of days later were uh, healed. Now, Father, uh, when, when Jesus uh, Jesus uh, mentioned something about when he came back, when he would come back, he would bring back uh, his monetary system. I, I don't know if, if you call it Paterni, or you, you would know how to pronounce it. But, but anyway, I notice there is a tremendous change in the global uh, economy. Uh, whereas gold uh, goes up maybe as high as $30,000 over the years, it will help to substantiate and support the dollar instead of the other way around and will maintain the United States as the world's central currency. I wonder, would this have something to do with Jesus' new monetary system? Because uh, a couple of years later, about seven years later, I was contacted by that same military base, and I was given some confidential information, which is now declassified that there is a man, and the military or the government is not interfering with this gentleman. There is a man who is claiming to be the reincarnation, the commutator of Jesus. Now, I've heard him speak, and he sounds just like you thought uh, Jesus would speak. So I wonder if you would comment on the monetary system and uh, Jesus coming back as this man.
5: Well, I don't know if I could comment on the monetary system, but as. Uh, I don't know uh, Jesus said you know neither the day nor the hour it is known only to the father and he uh, so I don't know when Jesus will come back uh, he will come back again uh, but I don't, uh, I don't know if he's here now. There, you know, if you read uh, the epistles and uh, the the notion of rapture, that's a very, very complicated subject with with which I am unable to really deal competently. Uh, suffice it that we do know that there is going to be a coming of Christ, and when he does come, the scale will be balanced finally and forever according to his law, but I can't comment on, uh, on the monetary system. I can, you talk about uh, an apparition, I, I don't have a problem with apparitions because uh, they, they are verified, validated, established as having occurred, but usually those are more personal and private to the individual, and on those I don't have any competency to uh, talk at all
1: well the the uh, the apparitions the marian apparitions at, at Lourdes lords or fatima yes. um, or, or Guadalupe uh for some reason uh, well, i've
5: i've been to i've been to Guadalupe and i have seen the uh and i have seen the uh what Don uh, the uh, young uh, mexican Don uh, diego i believe his name was uh uh when he carried it to the bishop and i've seen the uh uh, what uh, eventuated from that, the painting, uh, the, uh, the, the image of Mary. That's not a painting. I don't know what it is. It's not a painting. I've also seen the Shroud of Turin. Uh, uh, I, I absolutely and unequivocally believe in Marian apparitions. I've done a lot of work on Fatima. Uh, Lord knows how much study I've done on it, and I'm convinced of its reality. I was at Lourdes, and I saw the incorrupt body of St. Bernadette. It's incorrupt. Uh, if you want evidence of something having happened at Lords, which is uh, different, and at Lords, of course, as you know, that's where the uh, notion of the Immaculate Conception came to be, where uh, Bernadette was told, "I am the Immaculate Conception." We don't know in the Eastern right. That's a difficult. Uh, uh what exactly that means you know in saint luke when the holy spirit overshadowed the blessed mother uh and she conceived uh, uh by the holy spirit that notion of Immaculate Conception is very, very difficult for the... Ro- you had asked originally, what's the difference between the Eastern and the, and the Western, the Roman, on, the notion, on different matters of religion? We both believe Mary is, is the Mother of God, but what the notion of Immaculate Conception at Lourdes means is very difficult. But nevertheless, I did see her body. It's incorrupt. She looks like she hasn't aged a day. And so these realities, uh, I've seen an incorrupt body of, a, of Vincent Pallotti, who was a founder of a Catholic order of priests at the Piazza Vincenzo del Pallotti in Rome. It's totally incorrupt. What these explanations are go beyond scientific understanding again. The, science has its place but it cannot address everything that is real because not everything that is real is material. In fact, to say that everything is real is material, you have to ask the individual, where in the material world do you see that proposition? Everything that is real is material. You can't find it, Richard. You can't get it from the material world. By that very observation you have shown by saying that everything that is real is material, you have contradicted yourself because you're asserting, you are asserting something that cannot be taken from the material world. It is an intellectual operation that you have just conducted. That's what I was saying before about sensation. When Hume said all knowledge comes from sensation, if you ask him, well, where, did you, where in sensation did you see that proposition? How did you come to that? He can't answer it because he can't find it in sensation.
1: Well, given that ninety-five percent
5: and the immaterial world, the world of apparitions, Marian apparitions, these things are not uh, the those things are separate from the sense world and are not the province of science because science can't
1: handle everything. Well, given that ninety-five percent of the universe consists of dark matter or dark energy, and we know we know. Virtually nothing about it, I'd say, you know, on the scale of knowledge, you know, we haven't even uh, we haven't even uh, gotten to step one yet. So
5: see, that's uh, the issue that I had with quantum mechanics in my book, in my ever after. Quantum mechanics states that we have access to only one half of one percent of the electromagnetic radiation in the universe. Electromagnetic ra- radiation in current neurological theory is the matter is the uh, Is the basis for all our sensation or all our knowledge. Well, good Lord, if we only have access to one half of 1% of the entire universe, how does quantum mechanics come to say that anything it can state, it can state with certitude since it has been eliminated from 99.50% of the entire universe? That's my point about, for example, there are there's a, when when the body decomposes the the reason we may not be able to identify the personality in that body is because it may have assumed a different electromagnetic balance a different electromagnetic arrangement which is not accessible to our ocular capabilities For example, the eagle can see things that we can't see. The cat sees gray, it doesn't see color. To us, the vision of a white polar cap on a mountain is beautiful. To the dog, it means nothing. There are different levels of sensation that different sentient beings have, and by that level of sensation, shall they come to apprehend objects in the world? So if, for example, we can't identify activity in the body that is what we call a corpse, it may be that it has assumed a different level of activity or action that we, our senses, do not have the ability to prehend. It doesn't uh, mean that there's no activity there. It's simply that just as different animals have different sense powers, we may not have the sense power to perceive the body in its decomposed state with a consciousness that is actually vibrant and may be experiencing uh, realities that we are incapable of because we don't have the sense powers to uh, experience it.
1: Let me get victory in on the conversation, and then we'll go to the phones.
4: I, I guess, I guess, what I, the, the 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 logical question might be is: Are there, and we don't have to deal with this right now. We could deal with it later, but could there be other entities within the the universe uh, that have the capacity to perceive the things that are beyond the ninety nine point nine percent that you that that you speak of?
5: Uh, absolutely and unequivocally. for example, people. Uh um, there's been much conversation in various circles about extraterrestrial intelligence moving beyond uh, light years to come to this planetary orb. It could very well be that they just rearrange themselves electromagnetically to appear to us in a way that we do that we can see them, and they don't have to move light years and light years and light years to come here Mm -hmm. they may just re-enter this existence by rearranging themselves electromagnetically it's possible Uh, One, there's so much evidence of this kind of activity. Uh, Good Lord, the Vatican has itself in a number of, uh, in two or three occasions, opened up the possibility of extraterrestrial existence as being factual. The question is, how does it come to this planet? Well, electromagnetic a uh, rearrangement could be a possible way that it just appears here and then it avoids the issue of traveling light years upon light years of coming here.
4: And the Vatican wouldn't say this just uh, on, a, on a flight of fancy.
5: No, I don't. <laughs> no, <laughs> the Vatican doesn't say anything on a flight of fancy, Mr. Vigiani, not at all. Mm-hmm, waits a mm-hmm. very, very long time before it makes any statement about anything. And yeah. it pretty much wants to be very very careful and clear. For example, I don't know if you know this, they have an ob- the Vatican has an observatory at Castel Gandolfo, which is run by one of their uh, orders of priests, the Society of Jesus. They there is a uh, an observatory in the uh, in the southwest that is funded by the U.S. government which is staffed by the same group of, of, of order of priests and brothers. These are met, Georgetown University is known for its work in astronomy and astrophysics and they have Jesuits there that study the skies. They're, they have had an interest in this for quite some time and one has to wonder why the Vatican would have an interest in this kind of uh, uh, science if They simply wanted to dismiss any possibility of there being anything out besides the Earth that actually had intelligence, and in fact, they've said on a number of occasions, two or three, and you can correct me, um, you know more about this than I do, but I know they've said on two or three occasions that one cannot rule out the possibility that extraterrestrial intelligence, that God can go so far as to create more than just the human being. He could have created other individuals of higher capacity, perhaps, that exist and reflect his glory in a different way than we do.
1: Uh, but Robert, the problem I have, and, and and Victor and I have have hashed this out uh, over over the years. Uh, I don't understand what these intergalactic interlopers who may be interceding uh, in human affairs. How they figure into this this narrative that's been you know laid out for us in the Bible? I, I don't get how they fit.
5: Well. I I have uh, that issue is different. I I'm not so certain that you will find. Uh, I mean, I've read the Book of Enoch. Uh, I know Hebrew. I've read different I've read different accounts of biblical figures in the Bible as being possibly not of earthly origin, like the giants that they speak about. I do not think that they are speaking about intergalactic visitors or extraterrestrial individuals there. I've spent a lot of time on that, only because I've spent a lot of time... I've written a work on uh, the Christ from Death Arisen. I have written uh, a work uh, dealing with uh, various issues of ethics in the Bible, and it requires a, a good acquaintance with the original language, both Hebrew and Greek, and I don't see any reason to believe that the inspired Old Testament carries with it tales or stories. Like, for example, in Ezekiel, I, we could go on and on, and there is no evidence in Ezekiel at all. Uh, and God knows, I know Ezekiel uh, quite well, but the, the uh, attempts to see in Ezekiel intergalactic contact uh, etc is simply uh, is unfounded in the original. that does not mean, however that these uh, that these entities do not exist, like I said before. The Vatican um, has addressed this issue I think in two thousand and nine or two thousand and eight, and they did acknowledge that it is possible that extraterrestrial intelligence does exist because god 's power is so great that who are we to deny that possibility uh, as far as the uh, As far as what their commerce and uh, intercourse with humankind is, that's something that is, I don't know if we have any handle on, but there's just too many accounts of this activity going on to be dismissed. You know, Aristotle has a principle when a lot of people believe in something, you better probably take a look at it. It might have some basis in fact. And that's the way I look at the issue of extraterrestrial intelligence. For example, in my, just to go back to the issue of after death, out-of-body experiences, a remarkable testimony, 24 million people in the United States last count had reported out of body excuse me near death experiences not out of body near death experiences they've been they have tried to explain this away in a variety pharmacologically hallucinatorically but the point is when so many people have this kind of experience using Aristotle's principle, let's study it. Let's see if this gives evidence of something beyond the here and now and of a capacity for man to be greater than just simply hooked to this material existence uh, that binds us down and for some doesn't give them flight to something greater and something more uh, exhilarating.
1: All right, let's uh, say hello to Arthur from Toronto. Arthur, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning.
4: Are you there, Arthur?
6: Hi.
1: Hi, go ahead.
6: First of all, in John 14 and John 17, Christ himself said, said, the world will see me no, no more. I am no longer in the world. So his coming doesn't mean a physical presence, but he will turn his attention towards the earth by resurrecting people. And one scripture, I believe in Psalm, says, The righteous themselves shall inherit the earth and live forever upon it, because God has a plan or purpose for the earth to be populated with one world government and even one world language, and that will happen in time when we don't know.
1: All right, Arthur. Well, that leads us into an interesting uh, area, uh, uh, Robert, and perhaps we can address this on the other side when we'll take a time out, and that is uh, end times prophecy. Uh, My understanding is, uh, having attended a few uh, liturgies, not as many as I should, (laughs) but having attended quite a few, I've uh, taken a careful note that not once um, has um, uh, the priest at All Saints Greek Orthodox Church here in Toronto uh, read from uh, Revelation, and I I want to ask right. you why when we come back. Okay. Well, Father Robert Gaius is with us. And, of course, from z News Service, Victor Vigiani, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show here on AM 740. Don't go away.
2: Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Governments and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM
1: 740. Father Robert Guy is with us from the Eastern Orthodox Presbyterian. Why why don't uh, why don't I hear uh, my priest reading from Revelation during the liturgy, Father? Well- If you
5: uh, go back to the beginning days of uh, the organization of uh, the New Testament, um, there was a conflict about whether or not the book of Revelation first was written by the same St. John that wrote the gospel. Saying, I believe that that's been successfully uh, judged in his favor. There seems to be a lot of evidence to say that John of Revelation, the John of the Epistles of St. John, and the John that wrote uh, the Gospel of St. John are pretty much in the same, uh, are pretty much the same person. To your question, why isn't the book of Revelation read at Orthodox liturgy? The Orthodox rite accepted the book of Revelation in the 4th century AD, but St. John Chrysostom stated very uh, succinctly that it is a very, very difficult work to understand, and it is open to misinterpretation on many counts. So it is best not to confuse the faithful, but to leave it to those who can study it for decades upon decades and try to work out its meanings. Uh, As you know, there are many different interpretations of various passages. So the reason why it is not read in the Orthodox Church is because of its extreme difficulty, uh, especially in the metaphors that it uses and in the similes and figures of speech. They are very difficult to they, They, The book of Revelation is the work of a mystic. And some mystical writings, if you read Richard of Roll, for example, or St. Teresa of Lassure, or perhaps even uh, the collection of mystic, uh, for example, Julian of Norwich... Uh, it is difficult to understand some of the things that these individuals say. St. John uh, is even more difficult because the work he has written has been written. Remember St. Paul says, I believe he went to the fourth heaven or something like that, where he had experienced things that nobody else had. St. John probably, in writing the Revelation, had an an outlook and a, a visitation and an inspiration that is difficult to communicate in words that we could understand, and eventually we will understand what he said. But so far, probably not enough meditation and prayer has been expended on the book of Revelation to understand it as it should be understood. So that's why it's not read in the Orthodox
1: Church. And and to to the extent that you've studied it, um, was uh when when john was was talking about the end times was he talking about for example the destruction of the second temp- temple in 70 a.d or some future event
5: no he wasn't talking about it in 70 A.D. first of all let me address the notion of end times that appears in daniel and it is very problematic i wrote a work called divinity of a birth It's coming out in october And I go into the notion of end times as a prophecy in Daniel because I had to treat the issue of prophecy. And that notion of end times is very, very difficult to identify because no one knows in the Hebrew, which was translated into the Septuagint eventually, no one knows actually what Daniel means by end times. Does he mean the end of the world or does he mean in the forever? I don't want to get too complicated in that notion, but we can't be too satisfied that when we see the notion of end times, are we talking about the end of the world or are we talking about in the forever? So I have to be careful about how I address that because I haven't resolved that problem for myself. The one thing that I was very pleased about in the book of Revelation is that St. John seems to indicate that animal consciousness enjoys a certain immortality in the presence of God also, because in the fifth chapter he says that he saw zoantes with the Lamb, Apo tu omnu, Uh, zoantes is living beings. Not, necessi- human, not anthropoi, not gunakoi, but zoantes. And these are identified as animals. So St. John tells us, I saw animals in the presence of the Lamb in, in heaven, seeming to indicate the notion that it is conceivable that Scripture is telling us that animal existence itself enjoys an immortality also, just like the Gospels preach we experience immortality from the moment that we are born because we are created immortally so also saint john seems to be saying that animals have some kind of immortality and it's not an immortality in the memory of god remember what he says i saw animals in the presence of the lamb so antes apa tu amnu that's the passage
1: all right, that's, uh, that's uh, basically telling us all dogs do, do go to heaven. Uh, I let's think say,
5: there might be reason. You know, if you read the notion of nepheshim in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, when it says that man received life, God breathed not only nepheshim into man, but into all living beings. Nefeshim is from the divine. And if the divine inspires, and by that I mean breathes into, nepheshims into all living beings, is there not some idea there that we are being told that living beings, conscious beings, have some kind of eternal being with the divine inasmuch as the source of their life is his nepheshim, which is breath? There are different words for breath in Hebrew, but in Genesis, that's the word that's used to identify how God breathes into the nostrils of, uh, remember, if you remember, he breathed into Adam's nostrils' life. That was nepheshim, And it identifies it with animals again, that that's how they got their existence, from the nephishim that the divine breathed into uh, living things. So there again, there's a consistency. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas says that uh, uh, God does not destroy anything that he creates he denies that there is such a thing as annihilation which is a reduction to nothingness there's a difference between annihilation and destruction destruction destruction, there's something left over. In annihilation, there's nothing left over. And if God brings into existence all living things, it makes no sense to the mind that contemplates and prays and sees a God that is all-loving and all-merciful and all-good. It makes no sense that he would simply destroy the animals that he has created, uh, especially since he gave to man the uh, the duty to name them. Why would God in general Genesis give man the duty to name animals if he was going to terminate and annihilate their existence upon their bodily dissolution.
1: Excellent point. Let's go to the phones. And Robert is in Buffalo tonight uh, or this morning. Good morning, Robert. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show.
7: Yes. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, Thank you very much for taking my call. Peace to uh, you and all your listeners. Um, I wanted to chime in and going back on the uh, idea of metempsychosis and uh, An idea that I read once out of the Church Fathers, namely from Irenaeus, who I think made a pretty good refutation of this notion of reincarnation, that is, um, the soul passing from uh, one person at their death into the body of another person. And Irenaeus, I read in uh, the Church Fathers, said that he starts off with the affirmation, since there are no memory of these alleged former lives... He starts with that statement first, since there are no memories of them, and since the uh, the, the systems of uh, reincarnation, both in the, uh, the Indo-European and in the Western uh, sense, had the idea that God was making these souls pass into different bodies for the idea of perfection, Irenaeus says, um, since there are no memories of it, how could they be hovering about, not knowing what... What they are trying to perfect now in a new body. He said this would be uh, senseless and uh, a waste of time for they wouldn't, they don't remember what they are um, trying to perfect in this new body they've entered. I thought that was a pretty good refutation of um, this idea that. that souls would pass out, uh, pass from one body to another. And there's also, of course, Psalm 78, if I might just throw that in here b- before I break it off here. Um, Psalm 78 and verse uh, 39, it says, For he remembered that they were but flesh, and a wind that passes away and comes not again. So um, I thought those were some pretty good ideas coming, uh, particularly from Irenaeus, that uh, that's a good reason why this would be uh, a, a senseless exercise of somebody uh, um, going from one body at death into, an, into, into another body when they don't, they don't remember these former uh, alleged lives. And if someone wants to say they do remember, I think that could be very easily proven. I mean, call them on it, um, the history, and, and uh, ask them to dictate what happened in these formulae, and that could be very easily
1: tested. All right, Robert, appreciate uh, your call from Buffalo. Uh, and uh, Robert Gaius, uh, did you uh, care to respond?
5: Well, yeah, St. Irenaeus does make that comment. The gentleman is absolutely correct. Uh, the, when I brought up uh, uh, reincarnation and Ian stevensons uh, or it's Ian Stevens, uh, Stevenson, uh, What I was saying was that there seems to be no way to explain how it is that different... You were saying, Robert, that you should call them on it and prove that they know certain things. Uh, They have been called on it, and they have proven that they do know certain things. I myself do not accept reincarnation. If something isn't in Scripture, I don't accept it for salvation purposes. I simply reject it. I think Scripture is the inspired word of God. I think that the notion of that the prophecies in Scripture, which I go into in this book, that and I'm trying forgive me if it sounds like I'm trying to plug another book, I'm asked to write these books, and I'm not trying to plug anything. But no, my please, uh, please. prophecy indicates to me that Scripture is the inspired word of God. But getting back to this problem of reincarnation, they have called these people to try and, pr- and tell them, prove it, prove it, prove it. And in this book by Eden Stevenson, uh, he, uh, uh, so unless somebody has read something that I'm, and it's highly possible and highly not impossible, unless somebody has read something by, uh, uh, that countermand Stevenson's, uh, findings uh... we have yet to be able to explain how it is that different people are able to remember different events in the past they may have an ability that transcends uh... this existence that doesn't mean that they lived in another existence it may be as i said before an indication that the mind is not simply a material substrate but it has capabilities that transcend the here and now and how ironic it would be of the the, for the divine to give us an ability to transcend the now by being able to give us memories or knowledge of things of long ago it would be just it would be something that he would do in a sense of irony just to try and Indicate to us that we don't know everything that
6: we think we know
1: All right, Tony is in Brampton. Good morning, Tony. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show.
6: Thank you, Richard Uh, Robert uh, I'd like to uh, ask a question about deja vu. I can remember as a child walking down the street I was about four years old and I had a distinct recollection that I had been here before and I think it's in the book of Esdras in uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Apocrypha mm-hmm. that he, they, they state that the, the existence is like a, a giant circle, mm-hmm. and we go around and around. Now, uh, could you uh, elucidate on that? So
4: some,
5: uh, sci- uh, neuro- neurological science
6: tries to uh,
5: explain déjà vu as an activity of temporal lobe function. Mm-hmm. Um, where you think something has happened and you experience it again in the exact same way. I don't think it's explicable in that way because I don't think that experience is always explicable in terms of parts of the brain. I am familiar with the, uh, with the apocrypha that you, you reference, uh, and the only thing I could say about déjà vu, again, mm-hmm. science is not capable of explaining all uh, uh, mental all mentation or all consciousness in fact it can't explain any of it deja vu would indicate again that we do not we are not constricted to the here and now in our ability of mentation we are able to transcend it and I I myself have had deja vu uh, um, I don't dwell on it kind of smile and just go on my maybe two or three times in my life but deja vu is something that again shows that science is not capable of explaining another aspect of human
1: intellection thank you very much tony thanks for the thank call you. Victor, would you, you like to jump in here
4: well it's it just seems to me that there's just so many questions that uh that, that, that Robert's raised this evening that uh, I suppose on a day-to-day basis not many people you know, who are listening to the program dwell on these issues on a day-to-day basis. And I'm just sort of wondering, um, you know, when you get to a point when you try to um, define things as precisely as we are trying to do this evening, and we're really kind of looking at scripture. We're looking at, you know, things of you know, out of body experiences and you know, past life and afterlife, and there's just so many things that we cannot grasp or, or um, or, or understand, and in, 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 in a way of thinking, in people's way of avoiding uh, thinking or talking about these things on a day-to-day basis because we're consumed by so many different things, Uh, why does the human, uh, um, I guess, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Why do people not consider these issues a little bit more circum- with more circumspection on a day-to-day basis? Is it just they're just too difficult to grapple with or they're, they're, non, they're nonsensical? Um, and, we, you know, these sort of intellectual kind of pursuits, you know, occur very, very infrequently. What is it that keeps the human species away from you know, grappling with these issues uh, on a more regular basis? Do, do you know what I'm getting at, Robert?
5: Yeah, uh, it's something that has puzzled me for a very, very long time, uh, especially, uh, especially if one is a reader of Scripture where one reads in Matthew 7, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 7, verses 13 to 15, I believe, N- small is the gate and narrow is the way, and few are those who find their way to eternal life. Mm-hmm. Well, the individual that said that is Christ, and if Christ is God, that is one heck of a statement to fear, So one would think, upon reading that, one would want to know, is what I read from the divine, is it from someone who is God, and if it is, can I establish for myself that I am immortal, or how do I establish for myself that I'm immortal? One would think that this question is the most important question in one's existence, and why people avoid it. I have no idea. I I simply can't. The the Egyptians, as you you know, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Egyptians believed in an afterlife. They seem to accept it as part and parcel of their everyday existence. There are very few people that actually study and prepend on this subject uh, probably in the way that I have. I've spent... uh, since 1995 on this uh, almost nonstop, I've written. I also wrote a paper that was in a work called *The Failure of Modernism*. It was called *Descartes Res: An Interactionist Difficulty*. I've written four subjects in total on this since 1995, three book-length and one a very lengthy paper, and. Um, uh, the more I study this problem, I'm convinced that the individual is immortal. I think that my distinction earlier on between indivisibility and and divisibility, matter and consciousness, matter and consciousness are totally other. There is no similarity between them. Lord knows I've studied this, uh, and you can read my works and you can challenge it, and I'd be welcome to anybody challenging it and instructing me on where I may be wrong. I'm comfortable not as a man of faith but as a philosopher, which is what I've done my, which I did my doctorate in, I'm comfortable in that area that uh, we are individually immortal. But why individuals do not study this subject more? You raise a very good question, Victor, and I don't know. Uh, Aristotle says in the beginning of his Metaphysics, all men by nature desire to know. Not certain if that's the case.
4: Mm -hmm. Well, I I, I guess uh, the other side of that coin, Robert... And Richard is that the kinds of things that consume the world today—be it economics, be celebrity adulation, uh, the monarchy, uh, the the almighty dollar, gold—and all of these things that consume us on a day-to-day basis seem to uh, create uh, another substructure of existence for us. That we exist as such a material, um, you know, hard hard existence, and we we don't spend any time looking at who we are as entities and who we are as a society and how we understand what our existence is all about. And that leads me to the question, uh, and it, 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 for me it's, it is a, a continuous question of who we are as an entity on this particular planet. We're just a simple, you know, uh, you know, entities on this ball of mud circling, you know, going around our sun, but yet there are these other entities that exist in, in other parts of the, of the universe that are somehow interacting with us uh, called extraterrestrials, call them what you will. Uh, I, I guess the, the problem that I, that I see with all of that is that people spend no time trying to understand the subtleties of what's going on beyond uh, Dancing with the Stars.
5: Remember I had said that uh, Plato... There's a... Plato's statement: Knowledge can make a god out of a man. That should be something that is exhilarating to the individual. He should seek to become as godlike as he possibly can. What 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 what's better than being like than trying to be as close to your creator as is possible? It may be just my own inclination. It maybe that's the way I am. But one would think that that is such an honorable disposition, such grace to possess to seek. To become like God, and of course, when Plato says you become like God, he doesn't mean infinite and uncreated, perfect uh, in every single way. He doesn't mean that. He means that you, in some sense, take on that light that warms you. Mm-hmm. I don't know why people don't see something in that that's exhilarating. I don't understand it.
1: Well, if I'm, if I might, I mean, having a toiled in the in the mainstream media, uh, and and and. and Coming at it from someone who's always been interested in the, in the big questions, which is why you know I, I can't I can no longer be satisfied covering sort of the workaday reality. It's it's important to cover the workaday reality, mm-hmm. city council meetings, but I, I, I I'm I'm not interested in it anymore. The big questions: What happens after we die? Are we alone in the universe? But when you uh, when you're in the mainstream media, uh, and, and I'm very fortunate to, to, to be able to have this platform, but elsewhere. There, there is this pervasive um, mindset that, you know, that, in, that unless, you know, you can feel it and touch it and smell it, again, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the five senses, it doesn't count. It's not, it, I mean, science is the new religion. And uh, the materialists here in the West, at least for the moment, have won. They've won the hearts and minds of of, of young people. Uh, you walk into a public school, and uh, it's you know we we are we are raised to believe that we arose from this by accident from this primordial soup, and uh, you know we're hurtling around the, the uh, space on this rock, and it's all just happenstance, luck of the draw. And and uh, this to me has given rise to a real pathology, uh, uh, and and a, and a culture of death. Because you know how, how can you how can you have an an, an uplifting? Uh, I would look on life if you if if that's what you you're raised to believe. We're an accident, and when we die, we're just it's a worm buffet.
5: <laughs> well, it, uh, in my book on the existence of God, which I wrote a couple of years ago, I has have, have a chapter called Darwinism and Improbabilities. Darwinism, not evolution. Darwin. There's a distinction between evolution and Darwinism, which I won't go into here. But Darwinism, to which is what you're referring to, where just a matter of chance, is so improbable, mathematically and scientifically and biologically. I quote scientist after scientist after scientist who says that Darwinism is a religion. Forced upon people there is what's amazing about darwinism is that it does it does not follow the scientific methodology of verification of repeatability of uh, publicly verifiable publicly observable it just comes out a- and makes these statements about how we came to be which have absolutely no basis in fact and are as improbable as can possibly be conceived
7: and uh, one so of the I first... don't
5: worry about Darwinism. I, I, I think that the educated mind knows that Darwinism is not what its proponents claim it to be. Darwinism, if, uh, I think, is the work of a mind that is not disciplined by rigors of, of true science and of true adhesion to facts and the phenomena. Plato has a notion, save the phenomena. It's a classic notion in Greek thought. Darwinism does away with that. And by the phenomena, he means things that that appear. That's what he means by save the things that appear. And Darwinism does not do that at all. And and, uh, I... Invite people to read the chapter in my book on the existence of God called Darwinism and Improbabilities, Uh, I think. And and read others beside me. I just wrote a chapter on it. Darwinism is a religion, just like other systems of belief are, uh, that uh, that have no basis in truth. Christianity is a system that has a basis in truth, namely the inspired word of God, as far as I'm concerned. You know, you're talking about the media. The media seemed to push down. Dorothy Day spoke about America as a tin can culture. The great uh, worker of, uh, among the poor in New York after she converted to Christ. Uh, she once said of Christ, I heard his name and I finally discovered someone who loved me. She was talking about Christ. She talks about the tin can culture of America and how the media have pressed down upon the everyday people and tried to keep them away from the thing that matters most in their lives. So there is something about the media, Hollywood, entertainment. I think Victor said Dancing with the Stars. I think that's a TV show. Uh, uh, The empty lives that people lead... You would think they would want to have them fulfilled in something that's really meaningful, which they can find on their own, and they eventually will. Many find it too late at death. Remember that passage from St. Augustine? Late have I loved thee, O beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved thee. People don't want to say that about themselves on their deathbed. It's probably better to, do it, to start looking at this subject a little earlier than the deathbed.
1: <laughs> okay, we've got to take a break. We'll come back, and uh, a few more questions remain for Father Robert Gaius. Thank you. Take a look around.
2: What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740.
2: In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 Or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740
1: Just a reminder, next week on The Conspiracy Show, John Rappaport from No More Fake News and Nick Redfern will be here to tell us about the real men in black. All right, a few moments remain, our uh, conversation with Father Robert Gaius and, of course, Victor Vigiani joining us in studio from Zealand News Service. Uh, Robert, the, um, there is a, uh, I guess it would probably be a, a minority, but there is a tradition within Orthodoxy and per- perhaps in other faiths as well that says ultimately everybody gets in. Everybody gets makes it past the finish line and gets into heaven in, 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 in the end. What are your thoughts on, on that?
5: Well, I, I had like said before in Matthew chapter seven verses thirteen to fifteen, Christ Himself said, "Few of those few of those who find their way to eternal life." Uh, I don't know how to interpret. I have to take that st- statement at at its word. I uh, I can't make any statement as to how many get in who gets in, hope I get in, who doesn't get in. That statement, though, from Christ in Matthew chapter 7 is a statement of great moment and of great. It should be a statement of great concernment. Uh, I do know, you know, there is the story of Dismas on the cross next to Christ who had been a robber, and Christ entered him into paradise that day because he sought forgiveness. So one can't go into the notion... Um, of uh, what forgiveness constitutes and how God accepts people through forgiveness, it says that passage in Matthew that I have thought over many times. And it's not one that is uh, to be dismissed lightly as nothing that Christ says is to be dismissed lightly. So I don't think, I would say that that passage where he says few of those who find their way to eternal life, I do not think that that says that everybody makes it past the finish line. St. Thomas Aquinas, whom I quoted before, has this idea uh, in his Summa that on the deathbed, The infusion of grace into the mind can be so enormous that the most evil person in the world can be turned back to God. There is, however, a theory that we live our life, and the way we live our life is the way we choose our death. And if we want to live our life in a way that is not comporting with uh, divine excellence and divine law that says that our happiness is in doing things that do not comport with divine happiness with divine law god in fact doesn't send us to hell we send ourselves to hell because that's where we want to go that at least is my interpretation uh, of uh, what the end result of people's lives are they must conform to divine law and if they don't there's that passage from matthew chapter seven and i anybody that wants to read it i invite him to read it and he can he or she can decide for herself if that uh, statement applies to her or him
1: What what's hell like what what does it look like
5: uh, that you know you have dante's inferno uh i think hell is the realization that you're never going to be with god mm-hmm. i think that's what hell is uh What an awful realization, uh, at least to my mind. Now, like I said, that's what some people want. God does not send you to hell. Remember in the passage uh, in Genesis where the serpent says, If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Well... They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they learned evil. And part of learning that evil was coming into it, this existence and being away from God. That's the way I interpret that passage. If you eat of the knowledge of, of the fruit of good and evil, you will be like God. Well, if you want to know what evil is, God, God sent us into this existence to find out this is what evil is, to be in his absence. And that is what I think hell is to be in his absence, and just like the first man and woman ate of that uh, fruit, they chose to eat it, they wanted to eat it, so the person who lives a life that is evil wants that life and wants to be in the absence of God, and they will be ever shortchanged from what they could have become, namely something that was perfect in the eyes of the Almighty.
1: What about the uh the um, about communication with uh, the spirit of the dead? I mean, I know I know that that, that it is uh, uh it's it's forbidden, but I mean, we do have communion with saints. So Yeah, it,
5: it's it, all the, necromancy is forbidden. Uh, the, uh Samuel book 1 one of the listeners can tell me what chapter is, I can't remember. Forbids necromancy, communication with evil individuals to come in contact with the dead. Apparitions occur, I mean, there's Marian apparitions, Padre Pio, the stigmatist, appeared to people, different saints have appeared to different people, they themselves are dead, St. John Bosco, if I'm not mistaken, is said to have appeared to a number of different people after his death. I believe St. Dominic Savio is said to have appeared to St. John Bosco in a dream. So these are apparitions of the dead. What I think the, uh, the, the, I had said originally, uh, when Victor invited me so uh, 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 so, uh, courteously to be on your program, I had said to him that, uh, communication with the dead is forbidden in so far as it prohibits our salvation. But I do not see any reason to believe. In fact, there is communication uh, from the dead in uh, Scripture. Uh, to uh, uh, I. Uh, wasn't it Tobias uh, that uh, received an apparition from the who was it Samuel or one of them uh, he was called uh and he said here I am lord are you calling me and it was uh and he had received an apparition from uh, one or two of uh people who had lived before him uh so uh the uh, the communication from the dead is only forbidden in as much as it would deny the working of the uh, divine in our life. Does the divine seek to prevent communication with the dead? Well, like I said, there are apparitions that are given to us. And uh, I don't know whether or not we ourselves on our own can contact the dead. I suspect that that is very, very difficult to do, although there are many people I have spoken to myself who have told me that their husband has been, that they feel their husband, they feel their wife who has passed. Uh, I'm not going to deny that is true. I don't know what that statement, I sense their presence means. There are too many instances of people who have claimed that they saw somebody protect them from death. There's just too many of these statements to just say, well, these people are are hallucinating, like I said, that principle of Aristotle before. If a lot of people say the same thing, it's probably a good idea to take a look at it. And there are many people who have claimed that they have been saved from a horrific accident, that they have been pulled back from the brink of death by a presence that was a father, a daughter, a mother, etc. So apparitions, I think, are not something to be dismissed as something out of the question.
1: Father Robert Gaius, I have so enjoyed this conversation, and I want to extend you an open invitation. Anytime you'd like to come on this show, we would love to have you.
5: Thank you very much, and God bless you. Thank you very much for being so courteous
1: to me. Father Robert Gaius, thank you. And uh, Victor Vigiani, and I, you uh, too, thank Victor. you. But, uh, okay. Victor, a quick a quick word. Uh, mm-hmm. I know we're, we're very short on time, but yep. a very, very quick word on the World Disclosure Day.
4: Yeah, I actually just want to very quickly... Uh, run up by our listeners that uh, uh, Stephen G. Bassett has uh, come out with um, a rather bold statement about World Disclosure Day, July the 8th, and if you want to find out more about it, you can go to zlan Communications, uh, just, just Google zlan Communications, you'll find out more about what Stephen Bassett is declaring as World Disclosure Day, an attempt to have I guess the uh, the entire planet focus on the truth embargo and why we are being denied access to information about the extraterrestrial phenomenon that's being uh, engaged in the planet for the past 64 years and, and why the government is, uh, is covering it up. So have a look at that. Go to either Paradigm Research uh, uh, Group uh, under Stephen Bassett or go to z Communications and have a look at World Disclosure Day, July the 8th. All right, uh, Victor, my thanks to you as always. It's been great being with you. It was a very stimulating conversation, wasn't it?
1: Indeed, indeed, and I look forward
4: to more. All right. Um,
1: My thanks also to Griffin March for technical production. Back next week, again, John Rappaport, no more fake news. I'm sorry, no, uh, Nick Redfern and uh, John Rappaport will be with me on the 17th. Next week will be Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, and uh, we'll also speak with Gordon Finn. A renowned channeler. Back with uh, that with you uh, next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light, what I say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.